Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. Got your Bibles? I hope you do. Turn to the book of Isaiah. We are in the 21st chapter of Isaiah. You know, it's it's kind of interesting how how something that can look so strong can actually be weak. On uh, July 4th, uh, we went with Pete, best dad, out to the Bee of Goodrich plant because he's retired from there. And then every 4th of July, they have this factory shut down, so they do like a family day. And we're out there, and we're, the kids are jumping in the Bob's houses, and we're eating all kinds of stuff we shouldn't be eating. And, but they give us a tour of the plant. And, as we're, and Pete had a lot to do with setting up how the plant was, certain areas of the plant was, so he's all excited seeing all that they've kept that he had done. And but as we're going along, they're showing us pictures of or pictures and items that they use to make a tire, and and it's not you know we think a tire it's it's rubber it's you know and we most of us know steel belted so there's we know there's some metal in there but the reality is there's all these little parts that are in it that keep it that make it stronger, and we place a lot of trust in our tires as we're going down the road at. 70 miles an hour. Imagine what would happen if one of those, just one of those items in that tire fails at 70 miles an hour and you blow a tire. I mean, we're lucky that the manufacturers have developed these things that at least do their job most of the time. <laughs> but when one fails, it's a problem and it could be dangerous. Now, our country is itself is, is not a whole lot different. There's a lot that goes into our country to make it strong, that, that's made it strong over time. And if you study history, you know that it wasn't didn't just happen immediately, that it's a process of things that have happened over the years. But throughout our relatively short history, we've become an extremely strong nation at times. We are a pro- the longest surviving constitutional republic. There have been others throughout history, but they're none of they're not here now. We were the longest currently surviving at 232 years. We are a military superpower in the world. In fact, for a while we 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 were probably the only military superpower. Some would argue that China and and Russia are still not far behind, but we were we were the big dog on the block. We have the largest economy in the world for now. If you, do, if you do any research, you'll find that China is not far behind, and their goal is to supersede us as the number one economy. We are mighty and powerful, yet there are times when we are very weak, especially when we allow our strength to go to our head. As a nation, I'm sad to say that we suffer from the sin of pride. As individuals, we do too, but as a country, we do. We, we take pride in our accomplishments. Well, look, I mean, look who we are. We look at all we've done. Look what amazing things we've been able to create. And just like the Israelites, we forget the very one who gave us the ability to do those things, 
to create those things and to get us to where we are today. Uh, just, just think about what happened in the last two years. Um, this, this is an interesting picture. This is a picture of the relative size of particles. In the last two years, in our weakness, we have allowed the fear of a virus that's 0.1 to 0.5 microns. That's that little red dot down there. That's the coronavirus. That is your hair. We've let this little bitty virus scare us. Now, I'm not saying there's not some things we need to be careful about. What I am saying is there is a lot of unneeded fear out there over this little itty-bitty thing. And there's some others. Go by even farther down to the Zika virus, which is a lot worse. We seem so strong, and yet a little thing like that can take us down. Fear of a little thing like that does even more damage than what that can do. Our nation came to a stop, first time in history, that we had a lockdown in that way. In fact, that lockdown has such a huge effect, we're going to feel ripples from that through the whole world for upwards of 100 years. Not from that virus, but from what we did, how we reacted. Just looking out over the landscape of our economy, we can see the volatility, the uncertainty that lies ahead of us. We're strong, but yet we're weak. People want to bulletproof their finances. They want to ride out the storm that's coming ahead of us. But as believers in Christ, we should already know that nothing is 100% secure on this earth. And that's why Jesus gave us the best financial advice in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Now, I... It's nice to have a nest egg. It's nice to have your what you've worked hard for to be protected. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that because there are verses that talk about you know, knowing what you have and making sure you have enough to build the tower before you build it. It's just understanding that it's that last part there is where your heart is, that's where your treasures are, is where your heart is. You and I know that no matter how safe everything I have here on this earth is, the day is coming where it's going to be gone completely burned up. All of our gold, silver, property, possessions, everything, gone. Burned to a crisp. That's why Jesus says to store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Because there is a storm that is brewing on the horizon. We can feel it. Uh, I don't know. I've been working outside quite a, quite a bit these last couple weeks, and I'm I'm sitting there and I'm watching, and I hear the thunder roaring across Fort Wayne. It hasn't hit, didn't hit Austin yet. So, but I'm still outside. I mean, I know the storm is coming. We know a storm is coming in our country. There's no doubt about it. It's not a military invasion. It's not going to be caused by natural disasters. There are going to be natural disasters. There's going to be military intervention. There's no doubt. We know that from Scripture. 
It's not even going to be the complete breakdown of society, which I think is coming soon, where we are no longer 50 states. I see it happening. You hear rumblings of it in our, in our halls of government. See, all of these things, all these things that we're seeing, all these problems we see ahead of us are nothing but birth pains. You mothers out there, you know what birth pains are. You're pregnant, you know the day is coming, and then one day all of a sudden, ooh. You know, the only, the only thing close to us guys have is when we eat too many, you know, too many hot tamales or something, and then we feel, but that's not the same thing. You know it's time. And if you've had one child and you're your second child, you could have birth pains, you know, yeah, I know i got plenty of time. You just go about your day. It's no big deal. But I mean, I'm sure that first time you're like, oh, what was that? You know? But we see these birth pains happening. Jesus talked about them. And when he's doing the Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking to his disciples in Matthew 24. He says, and it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately. Because he, he had talked about the fact that, the, that all the, they said, look at this temple. Look at these buildings. Jesus, look at them. Rabbi, look at them. He says, not a single stone is going to stay on top of each other. It's all going to be torn down. And that kind of shocked them. So they come to him privately and says, when is this going to happen? Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Now the only way that happens is if we know what is going to happen. If we know what the warning signs are. Right? If you're in your house and you have smoke alarms, you know when the smoke alarm goes off, especially if you're asleep, what do you do? You first try to get your family out and then you try to figure out if there's a fire. Warning signs. It's happening. He says, "You and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Yep. And see that you are not alarmed. So don't be worried about that. For that, for this, this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. The beginning." There's more to come. The real storm that is brewing is the righteous judgment of our God Almighty, of Yahweh Himself, who is holy and pure. And He, he cannot tolerate sin. He's he reaching that point. If you, if you look back in the, in the Old Testament, you'll find out when... <laughs> there's a place where it says that God says that the sin of the Canaanites had not come to fulfillment yet. The Israelites were, were not to go into the Promised Land yet because... The sins that were being committed were not completed yet. I can tell you right now the same thing I'm sure is happening now. God's saying, it's not ready. We're not yet ready. Because the sins of the people are not complete yet. But he's intolerant. He's standing on the doorstep of history, ready to step in and execute his plan, which has been going on from the start. This is all part of it. His plan for the, for the world as we know it. And see, in our facade of strength that our country has will mean nothing in the face of the righteous God. Nothing. Just as we're making plans for our future, the Jews at the time of Isaiah were making plans for their future. You know, remember we had the, the Cushites, the Egyptians coming from here, the side they wanted to make a, a pact with them to go up against the Assyrians. 
They're planning. They're thinking that things are going to continue the way they've always been. It's not going to continue the way it's always been. So what God is telling them, he's warning the Israelites, do not trust in those nations because they are also are going to be judged. That's what all these oracles are about, about all the judgment that's going to happen on all these different nations around them. They too will suffer the wrath and judgment of God. So let's look at verse chapter 21, starting with verse 1. This one says, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, which is very interesting, and the whirlwinds and the Negev sweep on. It comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. A traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam. Lay siege, O Medea. All the sighing she has caused I bring to an end. Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. Birth pains? I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. And the twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. They prepare the table. They spread their rugs. They eat. They drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out upon a watchtower, I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. Remember Jesus says, beware that you are not led astray. How do you not be led astray? Because you know what's going on. You're the watchman on the wall. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. O my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. What we got to understand about this, these verses is the fact that Babylon was in existence, but it was a vassal state of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are trying to attack Judah. So that's why the Cushites are coming to make a pact, to try to open against them. you got the other, tri- other nations around them making pacts with Assyria so that they don't get destroyed. And you have Babylon, who's also a vassal state, a, you might call them an annexation of Assyria. We know from history that Babylon is the one who comes in and takes out Jerusalem, destroys Jerusalem. But they're not even, they're not even players at this point. But this is talking about the fact that Babylon, too, will be destroyed. You know, three of the most important tools in interpreting Scripture is context, context, in context. So we've got to understand the context. So if we're, in order to do that, we need to we need to see what to understand what God is revealing. We need to understand the context of this chapter. This was written during the time of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah had his ups and downs. We're going to talk about that in a moment. We'll see it much later in Isaiah. Hezekiah was a king who who at times was really good, at other times he was prideful. And Assyria is trying to conquer Judah. Babylon had not yet risen to power, but they soon will. The ancient city of Babylon was the center of history. This is Babylon. This is in the, the plains of Shinar. This is the place where God told everybody, okay, I need you, you, you are to spread out throughout the whole world, and you are to fill the earth, subdue it. Same order he gave Adam, same order he gave Noah and his sons. But what do the people do? They come back and they gather together and they build themselves a tower to show how great they are so nobody gets scattered and God has to come down and confuse their languages. That's why we have all the different languages today. 
and they get scattered all over the world. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but you can actually, actually trace. There are ancient stories in a lot of different countries that trace their stories back to one of Noah's sons, back through Babylon to that time. So that's what's going on, that ancient city of Babylon. It's, it's, it's a city that's considered the source of paganism and idolatry. We see a lot of times in Scripture it's used. There's not, when it's, a lot of times it says Babylon, it's not necessarily talking about the city in in the plains of Shinar, it's talking about a, a city that is against God, a, a lost pagan city. It's under the foot of the Assyrians, just like Israel. Now, later on, when we get to Isaiah 39, we're gonna we're gonna read this, the 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 account of Hezekiah, whose pride led him to illness. He was dying. And the illness seemed about ready to take his life. And in his, in his, on his deathbed, he, he, he praised God. He repents. And, and God, so what does God do? God, in that time, there were Assyrians were attacking. He is praying to God. God forgives him. And God kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. An angel of the Lord comes and destroys 185,000 Assyrians. And then Hezekiah is healed and he's given 15 more years of life. And what happens during that time is Babylon, which again is a vassal state of Assyria, officials hear about what happened. So they send a commission, a group of people, emissaries, to Jerusalem to find out, hey, what we've heard this story, is it true? See, what happened was Hezekiah prayed and God delivered. That's what God does for sinners. We repent, we pray, God delivers. He saves us. But unfortunately, Hezekiah didn't learn his lesson because in his pride, he takes the Babylonians throughout the whole city of Jerusalem. He shows them the military. He shows them the treasury. He shows them all the gold and all the things, all the treasures that are in the temple. Say, look what we got. Pride. I see it today in our, our leaders. We're very prideful. Oh, well, you know, we've got the biggest economy. We got the, you know, don't mess with our army. We've got the biggest army. I kind of remember through history, there have been times when our army didn't exactly get out there and kick the backside that it did, it was supposed to. Pride. Pride leads to a fall. The Babylonians are very impressed. So impressed that they remember all these things. And we find out later that when they come to conquer, they take all those things with them. Foolish Hezekiah. And in chapter 39, Isaiah sees a vision of Babylon coming to exile Judah. But here in 21, Isaiah sees even further into the future when even Babylon is going to be destroyed. Babylon will fall one day. You know, Isaiah's goal has always been to persuade the Israelites and to persuade us to not put our trust in the, the governments of this world. Do not put your trust in the things of this world because it's going to be burned up. It's going to be gone. We need to trust in God alone. 
And what's interesting is here, as he's doing this, as he's writing this in chapter 21, he begins to use sarcasm. Look what it calls. He calls this. He calls this a wilderness of the sea. Now we, we know that you know you can kind of call the sea a wilderness because it's unexplored. It's it's kind of unknown at times. It's, it's probably the last unexplored frontier on earth. But that's not what he's talking about because he, he goes from the the from a wilderness of the sea to a desert, a terrible land. We we know that you know. Both dry and wet together was what he's talking about. He's talking about Babylon. Babylon is in the middle of a desert, but there's water there. There's the Tigris and the Euphrates River, but it's far from a sea. So why is it called the wilderness of the sea? He's trying to show you that, you know, humans, we cannot survive in the oceans without some huge human intervention. Scuba tanks, submarines, so forth. We can't survive in the desert very long without some extreme human endeavors. Go walking out in the desert sooner or later. If, you don't, if you're not prepared for it, if you don't know how to collect water, you're going to die. Don't put your trust in these things. Don't put your trust in the wilderness of the sea. Don't put your trust in the desert, the wilderness. It's not, it's not going to save you. And then in verse 2, we see that it's going to, there's a betrayal. Because look what it says. It says, the traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. We know from history that Cyrus the Great, who was a, a Medo-Persian, who was also part of Babylon, he's a traitor. He comes in, he overtakes the throne, he, he overthrows the Babylonians, and now we have the, the Medo-Persian Empire that takes over that area. And that was in 626 to 539. And it's going to, they're the ones who are going to end up returning the exiled Jews back to Judah, back to, to Jerusalem. But we have to understand, like I said earlier, that, that Babylon has a much broader description, much broader definition than just this old ancient city who Saddam Hussein did try to rebuild, by the way. It's more of a museum than a city in southern Iraq, because Babylon represents rebellion and evil against God. Babylon is mentioned six times in the book of Revelation. If we quickly look at those, in Revelation 14, 8, it says, Another angel, a second, follows, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. In verse chapter 16, verse 19, it says, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Revelation 17:5 says, On her forehead was written the name Mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abomination. This is where this is where they say that it is believed that this is where paganism starts. This is where it started, where it started, where God they really turned against God. All pagan religions can trace their, their path back to Babylon. And Revelation 18.2 says, And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen, is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. See, Babylon in prophecy always describes a place where religion, commerce, and government all come together under one roof. 
all come together, entwined as one unit. There's no separation of powers. You know, we think of the government, we think of a separation of powers. We have the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch. But today they're, they're kind of mixing. It's kind of, it's kind of becoming a mess. But, but here in Babylon, there's no separation of powers. The one who rules, the one who's the king, is the one who's worshipped. History has shown that most nations are ruled by sovereigns who control every aspect of the lives of the people. The United States is a rarity. It's an oddity. It's not common. But I see us moving in the direction of a totalitarianism. We talk about that sometime. But this final end-time term for Babylon is used as this all-encompassing rebellion against Yahweh and has been used throughout history to describe many cities. It has been used in Scripture to describe Jerusalem. The early church fathers used it to describe Rome. Some people today would even use it to describe Washington, D.C. No matter what city Babylon is at the time, it's going to fall. Fall. Scripture says so. Whether it be a city, a false religion, or a political system, it doesn't matter. Babylon will fall because God is sovereign, sovereign and his, his, his plan is going to work out. It cannot be stopped. So I have to ask the question, are we living in Babylon? Are we today living in Babylon? So let's, let's think about this. I, I think we're living in a kind of Babylon so what are the characteristics of Babylon? Arrogance was number one. Are we arrogant as a nation? Oh, yeah. No doubt. Especially those in office in Washington. I think they're, they're, most of them are extremely arrogant. Now, that doesn't mean that all of them are bad. There are some really good godly people who've been called to be in office. And they're there and they're trying their best, but they're fighting against something that is much greater than just a person. We have arrogance in spades in our society. Our government's corrupt, no longer run by those who are elected, but run by the bureaucracy, who remain from administration to administration. We've wandered far from the founding faith that our our country was founded on. And if you don't believe that our country was founded on faith, you need to read the writings of the church, the founding fathers, the actual personal letters. It was founded on their faith. Let's look at the other characteristics of Babylon. Defiance? Oh, yeah. We're defiant against God. Idolatry? Check that one, too. Plenty of idolatry going around in this country. Wickedness and the pursuit of sensual pleasures. Oh, yeah. yeah. Beyond anything we could even imagine. Check that one off our list, too. How about military strength? Yep. Check there also. How about trading with the nations? Because we know that the, when Babylon is destroyed, all of the, all of the uh, merchants are upset because, oh, my gosh, we can't sell our goods to Babylon anymore. We have that? Oh, yeah. When we shut down, the world shut down, by the way. We affected the whole world economy. 
It stopped everything. Yeah, we got that one too. By all definitions, we are living in Babylon. And if we are, and let me just say this. I do, I'm not saying that the Babylon that talks about in here where it's going to be destroyed in the end times, I'm not saying that we are that. What I'm saying is for our time, we are living in what can be considered Babylon. But the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we do it? How do we live in Babylon and not get pulled into all of the stuff that Babylon is doing? How, how do we keep ourselves from falling for all the things that Babylon has fallen for? Does the Bible tell us how to live in Babylon? Yeah, it does. First of all, we need to trust in the Lord. We, we've got to be sure of where we place our trust. That's the whole point of Isaiah's, what Isaiah is saying here is, don't trust in the nations. Don't trust in Babylon. Don't trust in the officials. Trust in God. He is the only one you can trust in. What is our refuge, right? Where do we, where do we take refuge? There's no other place to take refuge in this world except in Christ. Do we, do we take refuge in our checking accounts, in our retirement plans, in our, in our homes, in our families? Those are weak compared to God. We need to trust in God. Is our, is our treasure stored up here on earth, or are we storing up treasures in heaven? Look at Galatians 3, 1, 3, 3, 4. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul talking. He says, who gave himself for sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus died. Yes, he died to save us from, from our sins. He, he died so that we could be redeemed. But he also died so that we could be saved from this current evil age that we're living in. That we don't have to fall for the things that Babylon is throwing at us. We don't have to buy into the idolatry of this world. But see, we have got to make a choice. Are we going to trust in that? Or are we going to trust in God? Jesus needs to be our refuge and our strength. We've got to put our full trust in him. We have to flee from the things of this world that are going to lead us astray. Now, I'm not saying that we need to, to go out, you know, let's, let's go build a bunker, right? Build us a compound, put, you know, store up food for the next 30 years, have a list of who can come in and who can, depending on how useful you are to the complex, you know. That's not what, he, what he's talking about. What he's saying is don't get trapped in the things of this world. There's nothing wrong with using technology. Not a thing wrong with it. But you must understand that there are dangers in using that technology. I can steal more using technology than I ever can with a gun. I can do more damage with technology than I ever can with a gun. It's dangerous. You must know it. You must be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. When, when the things of this world make you anxious, where do you go? Where do you run to? What 
brings you solace? What helps you with your anxiousness? Do you flee to Christ? Do you go to his word? Do you sing songs of worship? Or do you take another pill? Do something else that gets your mind off your problems, right? Understand that fleeing to Christ and, and, and resting is not, it's not going to make all your problems go away. Because Jesus says in this world, you're going to have trials, you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have problems. But he says, I'm there, I've overcome those. Just rest in me, trust in me, I'll get you through it. No temptation is common, that's not, you'll never suffer temptation that's not common to man. And God will always provide a way out. So when you are tempted, there is a way out of it, but you've got to search for it, you've got to want it. If you don't want it enough, you won't see it. And you'll fall for the temptation, and you'll reap the repercussions of it for, for a long time. I always tell people, yeah, your sins are forgiven, but there is always results of your sin. You go out and you spend too much money. Sooner or later, you've got to pay the piper, and you're, you're going to be in trouble. There is always a result of your sin. But Christ can get you through it. And he can redeem you. The fires, the fire that's coming will not consume us. We're going to make it through. While the rest of the world is running around like chickens with their head cut off, we can be calm. It's okay. God has us. It's going to take care of it. During the coronavirus, I was always like, I know where this is coming from. This is all evil because look what it's doing. It's separating people. It's creating fear. God has this. This doesn't surprise him. He'll take care of it. And all the truth will ultimately come out. Just got to give it time. Trust in the Lord. Second, we need to seek the prosperity of the city. We must learn to live. For now, we need to learn to live in Babylon, but not be corrupted by Babylon. And even if the United States is not the Babylon, it will too one day be destroyed like Babylon. Because everything is temporary. We would do well to follow Jeremiah's advice. He did, gave this advice to the Jewish exiles who were going into Babylon. He says in Jeremiah 29, 7, it says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We need to be praying for our cities. We need to be praying for our nation. We need to be praying for our leaders. We need to be praying for them. We need to be doing good things in them. You know those, you know, how do you store treasures in heaven? You by doing the good works that God has already prepared in advance for you as to do for us to walk in. And part of that is to benefit the place where you live, loving your neighbors, taking care of those who are in need. Praying for your city. Because their welfare is a reflection of our welfare. But also we must come out and be separate. Again, that doesn't mean buying a bunker out in the middle of nowhere or buying one of the former missile silos and creating a whole society in a missile silo. They do that, by the way. Pretty amazing places, actually. What that means is that until Christ comes, we need to live in purity and holiness. Come out. Be separate. 
2 Corinthians 6, 14-16, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That doesn't mean don't, don't have any unbelieving friends. What that means is don't do what they do. Don't come, get into partnerships with those who are unbelievers. Children, don't marry an unbeliever. Well, I'll, I'll save them. No, you won't. Chances are they will lead you in the wrong direction. You better make for darn sure that that is truly what God wants you to do. That doesn't mean you can't work for a non-believer, but it means don't be unequally yoked. Being don't be two oxen next to them, each other. Don't be partners with them. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or, or what fellowship has light with darkness? That's, it bothers me because churches today are, are allowing paganism to come into the church. Pagan practices. What, what, what does light have to do with dark? What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is another term for, for Satan. It's actually a god that was out in the wilderness. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We need to be travelers in this world. This world is not our home. This is, we're not to be setting, you know, setting our roots down. We're not supposed to be digging our roots deep into the ground and setting ourselves here. This is not where we're supposed to be. We have to live intentional lives that are counter to Babylon. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Looking forward to the next kingdom, where that's where our home is. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I think that's part of our problem as believers at times. We, we, we enjoyed that passions we had, the other passions we had when we were non-believers. Sin is fun, but it'll kill you spiritually. Don't conform to them. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. See, it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. We need to be living lives that are separate from what Babylon is like and the things that it's calling us to. Don't do the things that are going to lead you astray. Don't allow temptation to get a hold of you. It's hard. It's hard. I know it. Nobody ever said, nobody ever says it's going to be easy. I told you it was easy. They were lying. Jesus said it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough to not want to do the things that the world is doing. It's going to be tough not to be tempted to wander away from those you love. It's going to be hard to hold yourself up and to not do those things before you're married that you shouldn't be doing, that only married people should do. It's going to be hard when it, when it does, something does happen and you're seeing the result of your sin, not to get mad at God and say, why did you allow this me to do this? You, you, you've got to, you've got to sit and say, wait a minute, I, it was my fault. I need to mess up with it. I need to repent. And God will bless it. He will redeem it. But you can't keep going back and living the way we used to live. And in that process, we need to grieve for those who are lost. 
Do you, do you care about the people you know in your life who are non-believers? Do you? Do you care for those people, your family members who, are, who you know don't believe in God or certainly don't live like they believe in God? Are you, are you worried about them? Are you, are you concerned for their future life? Are you concerned for their eternity? We should be grieving for them, weeping for those that are lost. We live in a Babylon that's earnestly leading people towards their destruction and the judgment of God. And while we are seeking our refuge in Christ, allowing Him to put this spiritual wall of protection around us, those that we love who we know don't know Christ and those of our neighbors who we know that don't know Christ, they're outside the wall. And nobody's telling them. It, sh- it should break our hearts. We should grieve like Isaiah did when he saw the future of Babylon. He talks about that. He talks about how his, his my heart staggers. Horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. Do we, do we weep like that for the lost? We should. Well, I got mine. That's their problem. No, it's not their problem. It's your problem. Because Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. You were told to talk to them. You were told to tell them. And you're not doing it. You are disobeying God. End of discussion. There's no way to, to weasel ourselves out of that one. Understand that when Isaiah is grieving, he's not grieving for the city of Babylon. He's grieving for the people of Babylon. We must reach out to the lost in our Babylon and give them the only message that can save them. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope that they have. Are we living in Babylon? Yeah, we're living in a Babylon. The whole world is a Babylon. Its days are numbered. We need to live not as the Babylonians, not as people of Babel, but as people of God, separate, yet still amongst them, sharing the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.